Welcome to Sports History 101, a production of the Saints Sports Network. Good day to everyone. I am Ray Delgado, and this is Sports History 101. Thanks for tuning in to hopefully learn something about the great, but unfortunately no longer, Hartford Whalers hockey team. On October 11th, 1972, the puck was dropped in the first game of the World Hockey Association. So we're starting a little bit further back, or I guess not really further back, but starting at the beginning of when the Whalers would come to be, as is prudent for all of our episodes, which really didn't need saying, did it? So that first game of the World Hockey Association was played between the Ottawa Nationals and the Alberta Oilers. So that league was a new league and one that was started to rival the National Hockey League. It began with 12 franchises. So Ottawa and Alberta, like we talked about just a second ago, along with the Cleveland Crusaders, Philadelphia Blazers, Quebec Nordics, New York Raiders, Winnipeg Jets, Houston Arrows, Los Angeles Sharks, Minnesota Fighting Saints, Chicago Cougars, and the New England Whalers. The WHA was the first competition for the NHL in decades, and they did a great job building up talent and taking it from the NHL teams. Initially, the WHA looked at the New England market and rejected it in 1971. But less than three weeks later, the league realized that the region, all of New England, was actually a good place to put a franchise, and they changed their mind and granted a team to a group of Boston businessmen. That proved to be a great decision, as the Whalers would become one of the cornerstone franchises for the World Hockey Association as the league operations actually got underway. For the 1972-73 season, so the inaugural one for the WHA and all its teams, the Whalers started with hiring a head coach, Jack Kelly, along with NHL veterans in Ted Green and Tom Webster as players to really get the ball rolling. Well, puck rolling. That was bad. They tried to get a big-name goalie by drafting Ed Johnston. A couple of other teams in the WHA had managed to get big goalies. But Ed Johnston signed with the NHL Boston Bruins. So the New England Whalers and the Boston Bruins both shared Boston. So Ed Johnston signed with Bruins instead. So the Whalers went with Al Smith, who was a capable goaltender and ended up being a pretty good good number two uh, choice, that is. They also signed key rookies like left winger Terry Caffrey and defenseman Rick Lay or Lee. I'm going to go with Lay, L-E-Y. By the mid-season point, they played a 78-game schedule. New England was looked at as one of the best teams in the league, with six of their players making the first WHA All-Star game. So naturally, well, as is customary, every league that has an All-Star game, they do it at the midway point of the season. So the Whalers were represented by six of their players, which is pretty, pretty impressive. The regular season concluded with an 8-3 route of the Nordics, giving the Whalers 94 points 
So as far as point system goes for the WHA, it was two points for a win and one for a tie. And the Whalers ended up with 94 points, which was the most of any team in the league. Tom Webster was second in goals in the league as he scored 53 and was tied for fourth in points with 103. Terry Caffrey was sixth in the league with assists and 61. And Al Smith, the goalie, was third in wins, four goalies, obviously, with 31. So all around pretty good. In the first round of the playoffs, the Whalers met the Ottawa Nationals and they won the series 4-1. to one. But the Nationals didn't go down without a fight. It wasn't as lopsided as it seemed as two of the games went into overtime and the others were pretty close for the most part. In the division finals, the opponent was the Cleveland Crusaders. And New England won the first three games each by one goal. But Cleveland managed to avoid the sweep taking game four by a score of five to two, so they refused to go home. But they couldn't hang on any longer as the Whalers clinched the next game. The Winnipeg Jets were the only other team to score 90 points in the regular season. So it may, and they were played in the other division. So it made sense that the best team from the East and West divisions would meet in the first league finals. The Whalers scored seven goals in each of the first two games to take a 2-0 lead. The Jets then struck back in game three, but overall they could not hold back the New England offense. New England won game four, four to two, and then won the Avco Cup, which was the WHA, their, their trophy, the Avco Cup, with an overwhelming nine-goal game that just silenced any kind of I guess, good feeling the Winnipeg Jets could have about the series. After playing their first season in Boston, the team found it difficult to navigate around the NHL Boston Bruins schedule because both the Bruins and the Whalers both played in the Boston Garden and there was one other venue nearby. But those, all of the dates were basically given to the Bruins first. So the Whalers had to work around them and that did not work out very well. So the Whalers decided to move to Hartford, Connecticut before the 1974-75 season, which geographically is about an hour and a half southwest of Boston. And if you don't know, Hartford is the capital of Connecticut. The Hartford Civic Center Coliseum, nice big long name there, was being built as the team decided to move. So the Whalers played much of the 74-75 season in West Springfield, Massachusetts at the Big E Coliseum before they permanently moved to the Hartford Civic Center on January 11th of 1975. After winning that first title, the New England Whalers made a name for themselves as perennial contenders. In the coming years, the league would expand with teams like the Phoenix Roadrunners and the San Diego Mariners and then contract back to you know the North and the Northeast. However, the Whalers wouldn't miss the playoffs a single time in seven years, despite quite a bit of the league moving around them. They managed to make it to the Avco Cup Final once again in 1977-78, but the Winnipeg Jets got their revenge and swept the Whalers 4-0. So the Whalers won 4-1 in the first one, and 
the Winnipeg Jets managed to blank them the second time they met in the finals. Even before, but quite often during the 1978-79 WHA season, there were talks between the WHA and NHL about a merger. The competition to the leagues resulted in a dilution of talent and the level of hockey dipped on top of how much money was being spent on players now that there were two leagues competing. Before the WHA was around, the average salary for a professional hockey player was $22,000 a year. And in 1979, that jumped up to over 100000 per year. So really, the competition between the two leagues was great for the players because they got five times the money. But it wasn't great for the leagues as... I mean, you can only do that for so long before you run into real trouble. There was initially a merger agreement to bring six teams from the WHA into the NHL, but that fell through as owners thought twice about it. But eventually, on March 30th of 1979, during both the NHA and WHA seasons, the NHL agreed to absorb, keyword, absorb four teams, the Winnipeg Jets, the Edmonton Oilers, the Quebec Nordics, and the New England Whalers. The new teams would enter the league for the 1979-80 season, expanding the NHL to 21 teams and shuffling around the divisions that they already had. Thus, the World Hockey Association was no more, and the New England Whalers began their time with the National Hockey League. More on that when we get back. Okay, so the Whalers are now part of the National Hockey League, the one that obviously still exists today. Not only did they enter a new league, but they also changed their name and got a fresh new rebrand. So the team had called Hartford, Connecticut home since 1974, And as such, they decided a new name was in order as they began play in their new league, changing from the New England Whalers to the Hartford Whalers. During their time as the New England Whalers, the team colors were dark green with white and they had gold accents. And their logo had kind of a a rounded W with a harpoon vertically across it with New England arched above and the whalers arched below, basically in like a round crest. With the new name change, the team also wanted a new logo. Enter Peter Good, the designer who was given a week, or maybe two, to design the whalers' new identity. There's a great <laughs> just recount of that on the, I believe it's sportslogos.net. Um, <laughs> Peter Good. He really didn't like the idea of the harpoon in the old logo. And they were trying to, you know, obviously incorporate parts of the old logo into the new one so that you could still recognize it was the whalers. But he didn't like the idea of the harpoon because if your mascot is a whale, which it was, the whalers, aside from their name, their mascot was Pucky the whale. That means basically you're trying to kill your mascot, which, I mean pretty pretty blatantly that that's that's a no-go shouldn't do that so he decided to try to try and do something more positive 
he went on to create one of the cleanest, most praised logos in the history of sports. I'm going to try to explain it here in just a second, but you really have to go look it up. If you don't already know what I'm talking about, and hopefully some of you do know, and that's why you clicked on this and listened to this because of the fantastic logo that the Whalers had. Uh, but if you don't know what it looks like, please go look it up. And the original one, one without the gray background, which we'll talk about in a few minutes. So the logo has a green rounded W on the bottom, which is set below a blue whale's tail. And that blue whale's tail basically lines up with that center, I guess, tine of the W. And come the whale tail basically more or less comes out of that. I mean, there's a space in between. Um, and the whale tail, you know, comes off each side in an arc. And the two pieces together give you all you would want in the recognition of the whale and the W. The whale, obviously, for the whalers and the W for the whalers. But also, and some of you might not know this, even though you have seen the logo, if you look at the negative space between the two elements, there's also an H for Hartford. If you're into design at all or anything like that, and, and I am, or I like to think that I am, I mean, as simple, elegant, and just thought-provoking as you can make something, like, it's so much better. If you don't have to spoon feed it to people and with literally two shapes, a W and a, a whale's tail, you can get the entire job done. Great job. Absolutely great job. And the, the logo is timeless. It really is. So with the new name, their new threads and the new league, the Hartford Whalers set to work in the 1979-80 NHL season. The team was put into the Prince of Wales Conference into the Norris Division. I did not look up as to why they were called that back then. I was very curious, but that didn't end up happening. Maybe if you do a episode on the NHL later on, we can figure out. So stay tuned. So they went into the Norris Division along with the Montreal Canadiens, the Los Angeles Kings, Pittsburgh Penguins, and the Detroit Red Wings. So all of those teams make sense, except for the Los Angeles Kings. I don't really understand why they are in that division. The WHA teams that were absorbed into the NHL also did not get to keep their rosters. As the NHL, like I said, absorbed was a key word. The NHL viewed the decision as an expansion rather than a merger. Meaning the expansion teams could keep a few players from their team and the rest were up for grabs for it by anybody. They also had an expansion draft. So it wasn't your typical like ABA, NBA merger um, where you just add the new teams in and they keep their players and stuff because it wasn't a merger. And that had something to do with like the players association and collective bargaining and things like that. I'm not really sure, but either way, it was an expansion. So given their diminished roster, the Whalers finished fourth in their division with 73 points. Still not a bad year, but not a great year. Luckily for them, though, there were four playoff spots available within each division. So 16 of the 21 teams got into the playoffs. So they still managed to keep their playoff record alive and make it eight years in a row since the franchise was born. Back then, the first round of the playoffs were five game series. 
and the Whalers faced off against the Montreal Canadiens and lost in three games. So they didn't even win a single game. Fortunately, unfortunately for them, that was the last time that they would see the playoffs for six years, finishing last in their division for four of the next five years and only finishing one spot above last in the other year. So not great. Harford did manage to right the ship, though, come the 1985 season. They still finished fourth of five in their division, but they were only three points out of second place with 84 points and eight points out of first. So really not that far. There wasn't much division in their um, division, I guess. They took the Quebec Nordics, the team who claimed the first, in, the first spot in the Adams division and swept them 3-0. So... Just again, they're stiff competition all year, and they they were up for the challenge. Next up was Montreal, which, as we talked about like six years earlier, swept them in the first round. The teams went back and forth through four games, evening the series at two to two before Montreal took game five, and Hartford hung on in a one to zero nail biter to push the series to Game 7. Game 7 was a great matchup going into overtime, tied at 1-1, to with the Canadians eventually emerging victorious. And, I mean, it's not really much of a consolation, but they would go on to win the Stanley Cup. So, at the very least, the Whalers could say that they lost to the Stanley Cup winners, which I, a lot of people like to justify things like that. I don't really see that point because you lost, and who cares what they won. But, you know, for those of you who like that sentiment, there it is. The next season, they finished first in their division with 93 points. But unlike last year, or the year before, they didn't overperform. They completely underperformed and lost in the first round. Harvard would then make the playoffs for each of the next five years but with the same result every time, losing in the opening round. So, I mean, it's great that you have a playoff record where you get there six years in a row, but if you never make it past the opening round, that's not really that much to be proud of. And the Whalers' front office and ownership thought so too. So following the 1991-92 season, they made some changes, hiring Brian Burke as the general manager. When Burke took over, he looked to make some immediate changes, and boy, did he make some changes. He got rid of Brass Bonanza, which I had never heard of Brass Bonanza before, and I went and looked it up, and it's a nice little nice little tune that definitely will get stuck in your head. And basically, it was Hartford's fight song that was unique to them. Fans loved it, and so did most of the players. Well, Burke took it away. And he thought it was embarrassing, and he cited that some of the other players thought it was embarrassing because professional hockey teams are not supposed to have a fight song. But that song was so ingrained, and so it was a part of the identity of the Whalers, you can't just take that away. So that was strike one. And then strike two, he changed the logo. The logo that was perfect that everyone absolutely loves now and was fantastic back then too. He went back to Peter Good, the designer, and asked if there was a way to make the logo more aggressive. 
which is stupid. Good said no and refused to do it. <laughs> so the team decided to do it themselves, making sharper corners on the whale's tail, changing the W just a little bit, and then outlined the logo with a gray background. And, I mean, it didn't make it any more menacing or aggressive. It, Yeah, it just didn't make any sense. Needless to say, Burke was not liked very much. So the team hired new people, fired others, and tried to do an about-face and change the organization as money got tighter. In October of 1992, the Connecticut Development Authority loaned the Whalers $4 million and agreed to loan up to $10 million uh, with a provision that if the franchise was put up for sale by Richard Gordon, the state had the first option to buy the team at 85% of a qualified offer. Gordon bought the team along with Donald Conrad in 1988 for $31 million, just as a, a quick aside there. So basically four years after he bought the team, he's trying to ditch it. By September of 1993, Brian Burke resigns. Yay. And the Whalers receive another $30 million from the state to forgive their debts. The Whalers also get to use the Civic Center rent-free in a 20-year agreement, and in return, the Connecticut Development Authority would take some of the revenues, like parking, and the repayment of the initial $4 million loan. On top of that, if the team continued to lose money, the CDA would have the first option to buy the team for $45 million. So they ditched the 85% of qualified offer, whatever they said, flat $45 million. Everything is an absolute mess for the next six months. Multiple players are arrested for driving under the influence. The GM, Paul Holmgren, is also arrested for driving under the influence. He goes into a rehab center, and then they let him return as the general manager. In May 1994, the team is officially on the block, and both the William F. Dowling group and the duo of Peter Carmanos and Thomas Tews are interested in buying the team. June 1st rolls around, and the CDA buys the Whalers, from Gordon, and then they flip the team to Carmanos and Twos for a $100,000 loss. So they bought them for $45 million and they sold them for $44.9 million. So, and with that sale, the CDA underwrote a percentage of the losses that the team had already. But the big thing was they required to, when they sold it to Carmanos and Tews, the CDA, which is basically the state, required a four-year commitment to stay in the state. Meanwhile, while all this is happening, the fan base remains small, but really dedicated. The Hartford market isn't a large one, and the team in the past had lost other parts of Connecticut, like New Haven, to surrounding teams, like New Haven, which is really not that far from Hartford, 
were they were fans of New York. They're like fans of the Rangers, and they're in the same state as the Whalers. In reality, the market is too small for an NHL team, especially because the organization had done a poor job of gaining loyalty from even their own state, so it became that much smaller. Under new management, the Whalers did not improve on the ice through the 94-95 and 95-96 seasons, finishing 5th and 4th in the division, respectively. And as a result, fans still showed up in lukewarm numbers, which naturally was costing the team money. Therefore, the team went to the state of Connecticut and relayed that they lost $11 million for the 1994-95 season and projected to lose $20 million more for the 95-96 season, which they were currently playing. Referencing those losses, they asked to be let out of their four-year agreement to stay in Connecticut because they're losing boatloads of money and they're like, hey, this isn't this is not working. State came back and devised a plan. If the team could sell eleven thousand season tickets for the 96-97 season, so the next season, the state would renegotiate their agreement and give back some of the revenue streams to the team that they had previously taken when they gave them free rent and underwrote some of their debt and whatever. On April 19, April 2nd, 1996, the save the whale campaign starts to the complete disbelief of the fans. I mean, to this point, they had no real idea that their team was leaving. And now there's a campaign that says save the whale, meaning if you don't do this, your team will leave. The team had to sell 11,000 tickets in less than a month as the deadline was May 1st and the, the campaign opened on April 2nd. They also made it even that much harder because they completely changed their ticketing structure. So they got rid of the partial ticket plans, like, you know, the mini, mini plans that most families will buy. They'll buy like, you know, a 15 game package or something. So it was either half season or full season. They raised the average ticket price by 20% and then raise the deposit required to hold a seat, because you have to pay a deposit and then pay for your tickets, by 750%. No one with the team had any confidence that the plan was going to work, and several high-ranking officials and players put their houses up for sale while the Save the Whale campaign was going on. The ticketing campaign was announced in the middle of the 95-96 season. And at the end of that season, the Whalers concluded with their sixth consecutive losing season. But still, the team averages just under 12,000 in attendance for the season. So that's pretty good for a team that's being perennially bad. 12,000 people, that's quite a bit. For the campaign, the tickets are selling, but rumors fl start flying about the team moving to Nashville and other places. And after two weeks, they sold. 2,131 tickets, and then with just one week to go, they sold 4,222. Obviously, they weren't going to hit their mark. So just hours before the deadline, the governor of Connecticut announced an extension of the campaign to May 14th. So they got a two-week extension, and by that time, there were 7,601 tickets sold. So, I mean, I guess light at the end of the tunnel, but still not really. and. 
all of those involved saw that too. So the TV broadcasters and radio broadcasters started to jump ship from the team, basically seeing the writing on the wall that we're not going to have a job here soon. While this drive is going on in the last week or so, talks break down between the state and the team of actually keeping it there. And when that May 14th deadline hits, the ticket sales for the drive are 8,563. So not even close, 2,500 tickets shy. Nothing is resolved, but the team does say that they will honor the contract that they signed that is still real, that is still very much in effect, and stay in Hartford for two more years. All seems kind of well, but then on March 26th, 1997, the team and the state together announced that the Whalers will leave Hartford following the end of the season, agreeing to pay $20.5 million to leave a year before their contract stipulated. So the team still managed to get out of that last year of staying in Hartford and paid $20.5 million. The Hartford Whalers finished their 18 years of play in the National Hockey League with a 2-1 victory over Tampa Bay. Kevin Deneen, I believe is how you say that, scored the last goal for the Whalers in front of a packed house. And the last feeble attempts in the months coming after that to keep the team in Hartford surface. But on May 6th, 1997, Carmanos announces the team will officially move to Raleigh, North Carolina and become the Carolina Hurricanes. However, the Whalers' legacy still lives on. Their greatest players and officials, Gordy Howe, Rick Lay, Jack Kelly, Bob Schmertz, Frank Keyes, Governor Ella Grasso, Dave Keon, and Howard Baldwin are in the Whalers Hall of Fame. And the banners of the Avco title and the other Whalers achievements still hang in the Civic Center in Hartford. Also, the iconic logo still captures people all across sports and society to this day. The Carolina Hurricanes wore throwback jerseys with the Hartford logo in 2018 and then again in 2020. But even outside of that, more than two, two decades after the team moved, Whalers gear is still the top seller among defunct franchises of the NHL. And I think it's probably not very hard-pressed to say that they're the best-selling defunct franchise of any of the major sports, other than maybe the Montreal Expos in Major League Baseball. Fanatics, the company, sells the gear, and they have said that the Hartford Whalers gear is the most popular of what they call their vintage franchises. One interesting fact, while we're still on the logo and, and whatnot, the NHL actually doesn't have exclusive rights to it. Peter Good, the logo designer, still has rights to it as well, as an agreement to make it exclusive to the NHL was never reached. The team sent him a letter saying, uh, sign this to give us the rights to this, and here's a check for $1. And he never signed the letter and never cast the check. And the team never pursued it any further. 
So Peter Good, who arguably made one of the best logos in sports history, can still uh, profit off of that, and he still does. He's him and his uh, design partner still uh, sell the team gear. The team no longer exists, but its memory is still alive and well in Hartford and across the NHL fandom. But unfortunately, the small market, like so many others, are getting further and further from having professional franchises. It's a shame, but that's sports nowadays. And that's it for this one. Until next time, stay safe and remember that Jesus loves you. Thanks for listening. Check out more content from the Saints Sports Network at saintsportsnetwork.home.blog.